Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Like Bevan said, my name is Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor. And we are continuing this series through the book of Revelation titled Famous Last Words. And what we see as we, um, as we walk through this book of Revelation, what we see is God has given us kind of 10 concluding statements on 10 important issues that we all have to come to a conclusion on, figure out, well, what do we actually believe about these? And do we believe what God has to say about them? And so in Revelation, he gives us his last words on these important topics. And he doesn't give them to us in kind of a bullet point, simple outline format. He does it through words of poetry. He's painting pictures that kind of wake up our imagination to what's happened and what's going on in the world around us and then what will take place into the future. And as he kind of wakes up our imagination and we see our lives from the perspective of heaven, that then gives you and me the opportunity to make decisions and start to build a life that in the end we'll look back on and we'll say, that was, that was really a life of meaning. That was a life that counted for something. That's a life that really matters and will stand. So today in this series, the uh, painting, the poetic painting we're going to look at is God's last word on evil. Now, the question of evil is always pushing its way to the front of the line to be the first question answered. And we all know this. We've experienced this in our lives. When we, whenever we encounter evil of any kind, it just pushes itself right up to the front and demands a response immediately. It's rude. It interrupts what's going on in our lives. It, it doesn't wait its turn. And you and I have experienced this, and we know this. I mean, I recently went to the dentist, and after going to the dentist and the, you know, the drugs wore off, my mouth hurt really bad. And it's tough when you've got sore teeth to think about the parts of your body that still have health. You know, or if this afternoon, if you go home and you stub your toe, it's going to be really tough for you to remember that, oh, my elbow still bends properly and effortlessly. And if you've ever experienced the pain of a broken relationship and the grief that goes along with that, you know that that can blind you to other life-giving relationships that you have. And that's just, that's what evil does. Evil just, it, it consumes our thinking and it kind of becomes the main focus of our lives and it demands a response now in the moment. And that's the way it had to be for this group of first century Christians in these churches that John's writing to in the book of Revelation. I mean, for these individuals, just like, you know, many of us, they, they heard the message of who Jesus was. They heard that he came and he he talked about love, and he talked about forgiveness, and he, he talked about victory, and they decided, okay, we're going to put our faith in him. We're going to choose to believe in him. We're going to bow before him. And so they made that decision, and they bowed to him, but then it didn't suddenly become happily ever after, and everything was perfect and smooth sailing. And shortly after they decide to follow Jesus, all of a sudden, evil starts to grow, and it starts to spread. And Rome started to get more and more power. And as Rome became more and more powerful, they started to round up Christians and try to put an end to the movement that Jesus started. So instead of it just being this, hey, you know, it's like we made this decision to follow Christ and now everybody loves us and accepts us and we're having this great influence on the community, suddenly Rome wants to just wipe them out. And their pastor, John, the one that had been leading these churches, he's taken from them, he's putting it on an island in a prison, isolated, separated from them. And you, you start to read this and you see that, oh man, like evil is just spreading. And so on their minds, it had to be the number one question they had. What in the world is going on? What is up with all this evil that we're experiencing? And so when God goes to John and gives him this vision and says, I want you to write down what you've seen and send it to the churches, 
you would think that the first question answered would be the question having to do with what's up with all this evil? What's interesting is you read through Revelation, it's not the first question that's addressed. Actually, you've got to read through 20% of the book of Revelation before we ever get to the topic of evil. And that's really significant for you and me to pay attention to because what God is doing is he's communicating to us a, a really important reality that there are other questions that we have that we need to come to a conclusion to before the question about evil is addressed. So the book starts, and what it does is it gives God's last word on Christ. Our attention is shifted to this painting about who Christ is. We see him victorious and towering over everything, the most important, significant figure in all of history. We see him for who he is, an image that, as John explains it, he says every knee will bow before him. So we get a chance to come to a conclusion on who do you and I really think Christ is? Who do we think he is? Do, do we think that he's the son of God as he's portrayed in the Bible, or do we have some other conclusion? And then after we're directed to the image of Christ where we're challenged to come to a conclusion on him, our, direction, our, our vision is shifted to an image of the church, an image of local, ordinary, unimpressive gatherings of followers of Christ, kind of like what we have right here at Seabreeze. Gatherings that people look at and they think that that's not a very significant thing going on, but what what Christ actually says in Revelation is he says, if you want to know me, if you want to find me and discover who I am, you've got to be a part of a church. That's where I am. He says he's among the churches. So he's answering the question, so okay, so who is Christ? He paints the picture and he says, okay, well, how do we get to know him? And then he points us to the church. He says, hey, if you want to know him, get involved in the local community of his followers. That's how you get to know him. And then there's a third picture painted before we ever get to the image of evil, and that's this picture, Bevan just talked about it, of, of worship taking place from heaven's perspective. And again, it's in worship that we start to realize kind of what our lives are supposed to be all about. We start to center our lives on Christ and orbit around him, and through that, we discover what our purpose is. See, according to God, this is really important. Before he ever gets to the question of evil, this question that consumes us and demands a response now, this rude question that interrupts what's going on in our lives. Before God ever decides to answer that, he says it's actually more important that you come to a conclusion on, on who Christ is, that you figure out where, if you want to know who he is, where is it that you go to discover who he is and get to know him? And then what's the purpose of your life? He says those, those are the three more important questions that really frame and give context to this question of evil that we're going to look at today. So once we've answered those three questions, once he's taken our attention and pointed us to those three images, now he shifts our attention to explore the pressing question of evil. What's up with all the evil in the world that you and I experience and that we suffer through? There's a lot in the Bible, as you read through it, you, you come across this time and again, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's kind of made its way into everyday life. It's made its way into our culture, and it just kind of shows up time and again. An example of that would be uh, the story of David and Goliath. If you're watching a football game this fall, there's a good chance at some point you'll hear a reference to David and Goliath. Or if you're a fan of the show Survivor, I heard that the current season of Survivor has a David and Goliath theme. One of those things that's found in the Bible, and it just kind of makes its way into our culture. Another thing that does that time and time again is the idea of Good Samaritans. I mean, if you think about people that are out in the community and they're helping people and they're, they're serving and they're going out of their way for the benefit of others, 
you'll often hear people refer to them as, oh, they're, they're being good Samaritans. Even in our legal system, there's references to laws that are known as good Samaritan laws that protect people that are trying to help others. There's all this stuff in the Bible that just kind of keeps showing up in our, in our culture, keeps having references. And today's passage is one of those passages that kind of keeps coming up in our culture. And it's a passage that gives us an image of four horsemen, and they're referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And this, again, this, people might not realize the source of this, but it comes up again and again. In the 1920s, the Notre Dame football team, they had some players, the quarterback and the running backs in the backfield, they were referred to as the four horsemen because they were so dominant and so good at what they did that, that people gave them the title the four horsemen. Even kind of more recently, there's been several films that have used this imagery to tell the story. There's the X-Men Apocalypse film. Which again, it, it kind of centers on characters refer, referred to as the four horsemen. So the, the passage that we're going to look at today is the passage where these four horsemen are discussed. We're presented with these characters, and then we're, they help us identify what these characters represent. So we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to start reading Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. This is the painting that gives God's last word on evil. It says this, verse 1. It says, I watched. So John is, has this vision. Heaven's been opened up. He sees before him this worship service. As part of the worship service, a message is given. So he's watching this message being given. And as, as the message unfolds, he keeps continuing seeing more and more stuff happen. So he's got this vision of heaven. It says, I watched, and the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror built on conquest. So before we go any further and we start to identify these, I just want to point out a few different elements in the painting that are going to be significant for us as we go through it. The first one is it's talking about a seal, one of seven seals that's being opened. So what this is saying is that what, what Christ the Lamb is doing is he's giving this message. He's explaining to us what's happening. He's saying, okay, this is what's taken place in the past, and this is what will happen in the future. He's, he's uncovering a reality for us. He's opening it up for us to see it. So that's the first thing. There's seven seals. Today, we're going to go through the first six. Next Sunday, we're going to get into the seventh seal. But there's seven seals that he's opening up to help us understand what's happening. Another thing that's important for us to know is the imagery of the horse in this passage. A horse is the animal for battle. So the use of the first horse is described here. There's going to be three more horses. The use of this horse imagery is, is explaining to us that we're looking at a battle scene. That's what's being described here. Another important thing for us to be aware of as we read this is the basic nature of history is warfare. Historians know this. People who observe history and just think of, even as Americans, our own record of history, they know this. They know that a basic nature of history is warfare. I mean, just, just think the history of our country. You've got the War of 1812. You've got the Civil War. You've got World War I, World War II. You've got the Vietnam War, the war in Iraq. I mean, I, I left a bunch out, but we mark our record of time with battles, with war. And actually, God does something similar. His record of time doesn't look exactly like ours. There are some events that we think are really insignificant, and he elevates them and says, oh, those were pivotal. And then there's other things that we think, oh, that's a defining moment in history, but from his perspective, it's not. But if we could see history from his perspective, we would see this ongoing sequence of a battle versus good and evil. 
So what he's doing is he's, he's uncovering this painting and he's explaining to us, this is a battle between good and evil that's been going on for all of history. And the first one he identifies as being out on the battlefield of history is Christ. He says it again in this verse. He says, I looked and there before me was a white horse. The white horse represents Christ. He says, its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. This isn't the only reference to a white horse in Revelation. There's other references to a white horse. And as you read those, it's clear that this is referring to Christ. And what it's saying is, if we could see him from heaven's perspective as he really is through all of history, we would see him riding a white horse. That's imagery of victorious. He's victorious through all of history, if we could see him as he really is. Now, it's no secret that in our record of history, our record of history doesn't have Christ showing up on this planet riding a white horse. He showed up just like you and I did. He was born. And then even while he was here on earth, we have no record of him riding horses at all. I mean, when he kind of reached the peak of his popularity and on Palm Sunday he rode into Jerusalem, what did he ride on? A donkey, a humble donkey. And even in this passage, there's another image used to describe Christ, and it's the image of a lamb. The lamb's the one who opens the seal. That's a reference to Christ. Hey, think about it. A lamb is a very, very humble, very gentle creature. And then there's a description right before this given in chapter 5. It says, then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain. So what John sees when he sees Christ is he sees a lamb that looks like it's been killed. I mean, if you think about it, what's more unimpressive than a lamb, one that looks like it's been killed? So you have these kind of interesting imagery being used. You have this unimpressive image of a lamb that's been killed, but then you have this rider on a white horse. But then we know that when Christ came, he didn't ride on white horses, he rode on donkeys. His, his time here on earth was a time marked by humility. And this is important for us to pay attention to because something very significant is going on here. The reason that Christ is the king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the reason that he's described as the lamb that was slain and seen by John in this vision in the, as a lamb that was slain is because he was after the ultimate victory in this battle of good versus evil. And what Christ understood is the power behind all evil is death. The only way that he could defeat evil is if he defeated death. And so that's the mission he came on. In his mission against evil, he died to defeat death and rise from the grave. What many people look at, and they just see through history, they see this guy who kind of, he was, you know, wasn't that impressive. He kind of rallied a crowd while he was here, and, you know, he rode on donkeys, and then instead of, you know, fighting to the bitter end, he gave up his life, and he goes to the cross, and he dies. What many people see from our record of time is something that they deem as, you know, that's weakness. That's unimpressive. Like, you know, our great war heroes, they don't respond like that. There wasn't strength in what Christ did. But if we could see it from heaven's perspective, we'd see it what John sees, this is the white horse. What most people look at and they say, you know, that's weakness. Actually, the king on the donkey and the lamb that was slain, that is the greatest display of strength that we have ever seen. And that decision to approach evil in that way gained the greatest victory, the ultimate victory. So if we could see Christ as he really is from history, like John is saying here, He's on a white horse. He's victorious. And through all of history, we might think that evil is winning and we might think that he's uninvolved, but through all of history, he's been riding out on the field of battle 
and he's been fighting against evil. And he's been, in all different kinds of ways, he's been holding it back from advancing, and at the same time, he's been addressing the evil that's inside of all of us. The image that John gives us is of Christ on a white horse. Christ is victorious. The second seal reveals the first horse that represents evil. The second seal reveals the red horse, and the red horse represents war. So what it says in chapter 6, verse 3, the next verse, it says, When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. The red horse represents war. And there's just no getting around the fact that war is evil. It, it devalues people. It dehumanizes us. It's brutal, and it's horrid, and it's bloody, and it's cruel. There's just no getting around the fact that war is evil. And throughout history, as people have experienced war and seen war, there are all different solutions that we've come up with to try to eliminate this evil. And some of the, some of the modern solutions that we look to in response to this evil is we look to education. We think if we could just, if we could just educate everybody the right way, then we would get rid of this evil. We would overcome it. We, we look to social programs. You know, if people just had their needs met, if we could take care of each other and meet everybody's needs, then we could eradicate this evil. We, we look to military strength. We think that, okay, if we just had impressive enough of a military that nobody wanted to attack us because of the repercussions, well, then we could defeat this evil. And there's some good in those solutions. I mean, education is a good thing. Don't hear me saying that education is bad. We want to educate people. We want to help people learn how to think, how to reason. I mean, I, I've got a master's degree. There's nothing wrong with education. Social programs are good. They bring a lot of good in our community and around the world. Social programs are good. I'm glad we live in a country where we have a military that can protect us. I mean, th this evil is why we have militaries, because of the red horse, the evil of war. But the reality is, is none of these modern solutions are a match for evil. And the reason is because the evil behind this red horse is actually an evil that resides in each one of us. So what it says in James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? He goes on, he says, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. He's, he's saying, well, hey, wh why all the conflict? Just think of in your relationships, in your home, with your family, at work, in your neighborhood. He's saying, hey, the root of all this that we see going on, he's saying the root of all that resides in the heart. I've experienced what this verse is talking about. I know you've experienced what this verse is talking about. And oftentimes, the quarrels and the fights that we experience, they're over stuff that, let's be honest, is really small and insignificant. I mean, when, when I was, before I got married, I was living with a group of guys in an apartment. And we're all a pretty competitive group of guys. And one night, one of the guys um, brought the game Monopoly home. And we hadn't played since we were kids, so we figured, hey, like, Let's play Monopoly. It'll be kind of a stroll down memory lane. This will be a lot of fun. So we sit down to play this game, and that was a huge mistake. I mean, seriously, people almost moved out because it got so ugly. It was so cutthroat and personal, and it wasn't just like, oh, okay, you know, give me your money. It was like attacks. And I, I seriously, I, I'm not joking when I say this. I think some of the relationships from that apartment are still not the same as what they used to be because that game of Monopoly was so ugly. 
And kind of once the dust settled, it wasn't later that night, it was like a few weeks later, once everybody kind of calmed down and came back down, we had agreed, we are just not mature enough to play this game with one another. <laughs> but everybody's experienced this. And what this evil that's inside of our hearts does is it gets friends to turn on each other. And it gets spouses to battle each other. And it gets parents and kids sideways with one another. And it divides families and it rips them apart. It's the evil behind what we see take place on a global scale. It's what Christ came to address. And there's no modern solution for the evil that's inside of our hearts. What's really interesting, if you look through history, just in the last hundred years, the 20th century, the 20th century is the bloodiest century in human history. More people died in that hundred-year period from war or genocide than any other period in all of history. And with all our technology, with all our philosophies on how to develop social different programs and how to construct societies, with all our knowledge and education, even with all that we have, with, with all the advances in military technology and weaponry that we have, we still have not figured out how to put an end to the red horse of war. That's because it's inside our hearts, and the only one that stands a chance is Christ, who's on the white horse. He's the only one, because he's the only one that can address the real issue that's taking place inside of our hearts. So if we could see him as he is from the perspective of history, what we would see is time and time again, when this evil rises up to wipe us out and eradicate us and annihilate people, Christ is out there on the battlefield, and he's fighting. He's not just fighting on a global scale, but in our personal lives, he's there going to work against the evil that's inside of us. The next horse identified on the battlefield is the black horse. This is what's revealed by the third seal. The black horse represents famine. It says this in verse 5. It says, When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like the voice, a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. What this is talking about is this is talking about famine, the evil caused by famine. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, what that's a reference to is that starvation portions. What that's saying is that a family goes out and they work and they can't get enough money from a day's work to give them enough food for that day. They don't have enough. I mean, no matter how much work they do, they can't get enough food. They can't get the necessities for life. What's necessary is unavailable. This is describing the evil of famine. Now, for you and me in our kind of our comfortable society, we don't have everyday encounters with the evil of famine. We don't, we, don't, we don't walk down the street and see kids on the side of the street whose stomachs are bloated because of malnutrition or see children whose skin is hanging off of their bodies because they're so skinny and bony. We don't see that. And even if we do see it on TV, we can just quickly change the channel and we don't have to think about it anymore. And the modern solution that our kind of world has come up with to fight this evil of famine is they've looked to the global economy, thinking if we... If we develop the global economy and we can advance prosperity, that's how we'll defeat this evil of famine. And there, again, there's been good that's come as a result of that. I mean, having a growing, developing economy, that's not a bad thing. 
there's been good that's come as a result of that. I mean, statistically, the number of people who are experiencing what's classified as famine, it's actually declining. But this black horse has a disguise, and I don't want us to miss this disguise that's pointed out here. It says this at the end of the verse. It says, do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, what is that talking about? Well, oil and wine, those are luxury items. So what it's saying is, for some people, the daily necessities of life, they're scarce. They can't get them. But then for others, the luxury items, they're in abundance. And the attitude is, and don't damage the luxury items, because the luxury items, that's what's most important. That's the attitude that's being presented. And what we learn from this is the black horse often advances behind an attitude that says, it's more important that I have my luxury than your daily needs being met. That's what the black horse often advances behind. I mean, if you look at some of the great cities in our world, cities that tourists flock to, cities that are held up as examples of human accomplishment, what you find in a lot of those cities is at the same time you have these really impressive buildings where there's penthouses and suites and condos that are million dollars and they're full of luxury items, just a few feet below on the street, you have people that are dying because they don't have the basic necessities for life. And a real challenge in our culture as we've moved farther and farther away from God, we have a really hard time giving anything the label evil. But the white horse, he's not as confused as we are. He sees it for what it is, and he calls it what it is. And what he, what he says is, he says, greed that blinds us makes us numb to the condition of other people just so we can get our luxury items. He says that's evil. And the rider on the white horse Christ, he is riding out on the battlefield of history to do war with that evil. The next evil identified is the third horse, it's identified in the opening of the fourth seal. This horse is the pale horse. And the pale horse represents sickness and death. It says this in verse 7. It says, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. There's no denying this horse through history. I mean, what, what, what do people say? What are the two things that are certain in life? Death and taxes. We, we all know that death is coming, that we're going to face it. But even though we know that, we still look to other things to save us. We put our hope in different things. And one of the modern solutions that we put our hope in is we put our hope in medical science. And there's been a lot of really good stuff that's happened as a result of advances in medical science. I mean, my wife is 38 weeks pregnant, so we're going to, you know, expecting our third child any week now. I'm glad my daughter for the sake of my daughter and for the sake of my wife, that she's being born in 2018 instead of 300 years ago with the knowledge and technology that they had back then. I mean, medical science has produced a lot of good things. There's a lot of good that's come as a result of it. But even with all of the advances in medicine, the cures for diseases, the drop in the infant mortality rate, the increase in life expectancy, the reality is, is you and me, we, we're still going to get sick. And we're still going to face diseases that waste away these bodies that God's given us. And no matter how much we learn and how much we advance and the different things that we uncover from a science perspective, we're never going to come up with something that can overcome death. 
I mean, we're not going to find it. The, the one who has the last word on sickness and death is, again, it's the white horse. The one who, when he was here, he rode on a donkey. And when we're given a description of him, he's a lamb that was slain, but he's the one that he conquered death. He came back to life. He was resurrected, and it's something that he promises to those who follow him. His last word of victory on sickness and death is the word resurrection. It's something he promises to everyone who decides to follow him. So if we could see him through all of history, what John is portraying to us is if we, if we could see Christ as he really is through all of history, he's riding on a white horse. And again and again, as these evils rise up, the evil of war comes in and tries to just eradicate people. The white horse and its rider are standing in its way, and they're keeping it from winning. He is not passive. He's not sitting on the sidelines hoping for a good outcome, but he is actively involved, not just on a huge global scale, but on a very personal scale with you and me addressing the evil that is in all of us. And when it comes to famine, he's, he's again, he's on the field of history, and he's doing his work, bringing his victory. And he's in our hearts doing his work of going to battle against the greed that drives many of the injustices that we see in the world around us. And when it comes to death, he's the one that, he has the final word. He is the one who's already been victorious, and he promises it. He says, put your hope in this. I, I, this is waiting for you. We're going to get into that in some future weeks in this book of Revelation. But he has the last word on this topic. If we could see him as he really is through all of history in the face of all this evil, he is victorious. He's not passive and weak and just kind of hoping it turns out, but he is actually winning. There's two more seals that are opened in Revelation 6. The, the fifth seal uncovers the evil of religious persecution. And then the sixth seal that's uncovered uncovers the evil of natural disaster. Again, it paints this picture of we are just surrounded by evil in this world that we live in. It can hit us from all different directions. And after presenting all this evil and calling it what it is, Revelation 6 ends with a question. And it's a really important question. It's a question that we need to pay attention to. But it's not the question that we would assume we would find here. See, at the, what we would ask is when we encounter evil of many kinds, the question we ask is why? Why me? Why is this happening? That's not the question that we find. The question that we find being asked by a group of people that experience history falling apart is this in Revelation 6, 17. They say this. They say, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? They ask the question, okay, in the face of all this evil and God's response to it, they say, who can stand? Who in the world can keep standing with all this evil that's surrounding us in the world? The answer is given, and again, it's not always the answer that we would expect, and it's given again in the form of a vision. Revelation 7 starts out, and at the beginning of that chapter, we see this image of Christ and God's plan through all of history. It's uninterrupted and it's unfazed by evil. His intention from the very beginning is continuing forward. His providence is moving forward. And then after seeing that, then John's attention is pointed to something in chapter 9. It says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing. Remember the question was asked, who can stand? He sees a group of people that are standing. They're before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So who's standing in the end? It's people who have, they've come to a conclusion that, hey, what, what most people look at in history and they say, that was weakness. There's, no, there's nothing significant that Christ did when he was here. Most people that look at that and come to that conclusion, these people have come to a different conclusion. They've concluded that the lamb that was slain, that's actually the greatest display of power we've ever seen. And he, in fact, is victorious. Salvation is found in him. It belongs to him. He's the only one that can give it. So what these individuals have concluded is the decision they've made is we're, we're going to bow because we're, we're looking at the most powerful figure in all of history, so we're going to bow to him. Those are the ones who are standing, those who realize who Christ is and bow before him in the face of all this evil and all this suffering that sweeps in to take us off our feet. They're the individuals that are still standing. My kids and I, we love going to the beach. We try to go as much as we can. And when we're at the beach, they're just running around playing, having a great time. And I've got this little two-year-old, Cohen. And Cohen, he's a ton of fun. He's really kind of a rough and tumble little guy. He's the kind of kid that when you go to the doctor, you feel like you've got to explain all the different bruises that he's got on his body. Because he's just, all his legs and his shoulders and sometimes his face is all bruised because he's falling. And so we'll go to the beach and he just, he wants to just rush out into the waves. But he's not strong enough. I mean, he's a two-year-old. So he'll run out there, and the sand's unstable, and then a wave will hit him and just take him off his feet, and he'll go rolling, and then he pops up, and he's trying to orient himself, and he, he just can't stand on his own. So what we'll do is I'll, sometimes I'll hold his hand, and we'll just kind of walk out into the, into the break where the waves are breaking, you know, and they kind of crash against your legs, and it splashes up on your body. Sometimes we'll just stand there for minutes, from sometimes a long period of time. We'll just stand there, and wave after wave will come in and hit us, and he's able to stand. He's not able to stand because he's so strong and impressive and all this ability he has on his own. I mean, he, he would fall on his own. The reason he's able to stand with the sand shifting under him and the power of the waves is because I, his father, I'm the one holding his hand. That's the only chance he has at standing. It's really similar for you and me. When Revelation presents us with evil, it, it presents it and it's kind of like a, this is the reality you live in. This is what you're surrounded with. This is what you all face and will experience. And in response to that, the question is, well, who can stand? The only ones that can stand are those who have bowed before Christ and reached out their hand and decided, he is, in fact, the only one that can save me. He's the only one that can keep me standing in the face of all this that I experience, all that evil that interrupts our lives and comes in to take us off our feet and separate us from God. The only chance we have is if we've bowed and reached out our hands saying, Jesus, I believe you are the lamb, the most powerful one in all of history, and you are the only one that can save me. Those are the people that are standing. So the question that it leaves you and me with is it presents all this evil is it leaves us with the question, who do you believe your Savior really is? In the face of what you and I have and are and will experience in this life, what do we look to for salvation? Do we look to the human answers for salvation? You know, do you think that if you can just learn enough, if you can just be educated enough and have enough knowledge, that'll keep you standing? Do you think that it's social programs? You know, if we can construct the right kind of society or offer the right programs to people, that'll keep them standing. 
Do we think that if, if, if our military is impressive enough that nobody wants to mess with us, that ultimately will keep us standing? Do we think it's financial? You know, if we, if we have enough in our retirement account, you know, that'll keep us standing? You know, it's an economic issue. Are we only looking to medical science, thinking that our best chance to stand is, you know, the latest and greatest in what they've discovered? Or are we looking to Christ? The painting that, that John gives us when he gives us God's last word on evil makes it really clear. The only chance you and I have to stand is if we've bowed before the Lamb and said, He is the only one that can save me. The only chance is if we've done that and He's holding us up, not because we're so impressive or smart or we have so much money or we have so many resources. Our only chance is if He's holding our hand. So that's the question it poses. Who do you really believe your Savior is? That will determine if you stand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the detail you give us in this book. I thank you for the fact, actually, that you present it to us in poetry so that you can wake us up to a reality that on our own we're, we're sleepy to. We just we don't think about it. We just kind of nod off and ignore it. God, I thank you for the fact that you go to such great lengths to wake us up to this reality that there is, there's a lot more going on than just what we see. When we think of a donkey and we think of a lamb, from history's perspective, accurately as it is from your perspective, Christ is on a white horse and he's been victorious. So God, I pray that in response to that, that time and time again, when we experience the evil of this world, we would reach out to you and we would continuously say, he is my savior, he's the only one that can help me stand. Thank you for this morning, in Jesus' name, amen.